I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. When it comes to power, more and more, it's women who are at the helm and who are redefining the workplace culture. From boardrooms to locker rooms, women's voices are listened to, despite a history of far tougher scrutiny. I work with women all the time that will say, I think, I think that what we need to do is, I, I think that he, I think that my team member, women can diminish ourselves in language often. It is unconscious. And later, are women changing their minds and approach towards power? Most of the studies of power and what power is and what it means and who has it and how it should be wielded have been drawn up by men over the centuries. Understandably, they were the ones that had power. And the closest that women got to power was the idea of having sort of power behind the throne. Women and power, how history, gender and race are reshaping our views on leadership. That's coming up on Life Examined. There's no doubt, despite having some way to go, that when it comes to gender equality, much has changed over the last half century. From boardrooms across the country to courtrooms, laboratories, and the battlefield, women are not only getting to the top of their professions, but leading the way for future generations of women. Though the gains are gradual, there's something else going on. More and more, it's women who are shifting the paradigm when it comes to power. Women, like many other marginalized groups, have fought to be heard and understand what it means to walk that fine line, learning to fit in and striking the right tone. Turns out that those ways in which women adapt, approach, and use power also has broader impacts on society and in the workplace. Having and using power should be less about ego and control and much more about getting things done. In her work as an executive coach for female executives and entrepreneurs, Kemi Nekvapil has observed that women have a valuable and unique ability to foster abundance of power. This form of power enables us to stand with and promote each other rather than hold power over each other and compete. Nekvapil is the author of Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leaving Without Apology. Kemi Nekvapil, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to hear a little bit about where you come from. You have a really fascinating backstory. I was um, born in the UK, but I have Nigerian heritage. And I was um, one of the tens of thousands of Nigerian children that were fostered um, to white families in the UK in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Mm. Talk to me about just what your upbringing was like in the foster system and, and when in, in your story, did, did questions of power or empowerment really seem to become important to you? Well, one of the, um, it's interesting we can look back in hindsight, mm-hmm. is that the reality is, is that I was with five different foster families and with my birth mother um, on holiday. So I kind of had the lens of six different types of parenting and six different childhoods in some way. Mm. So it is something that definitely informs the work that I do now. But at that time, I was very much, you know, surviving a situation where I never really knew who my next mum or dad was going to be. And I got the messages that I think most young girls get, that the way that we're valued and the way that we're loved is to be good, so to be a good girl. And then I had that extra layer of making sure that I was a good black girl because the messages I got very clearly from a young age was that I was not as valued as those around me. And the questions of power, to be honest, didn't really come up in my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I just knew that I didn't have any, you know, that I had to make sure that I didn't upset the people that I was living with so that I didn't get moved on to the next family. So the questions around power came much, much later in my life. Well, you said something there that's, I think, really interesting, which is that there's the idea of being a good girl and then a good black girl. Can can you talk about really what what the difference there is and what are some of the characteristics? Because this is probably something that exists not just in the UK, but definitely in the States and in many other parts of the world. Oh, absolutely. I'm pretty sure that any woman of colour that's listening to this understands exactly what I mean. It, It speaks to this idea either that we have to either excel Um, maybe more than our white counterparts. It means that we sometimes it's called it can be called shifting. So shifting, you know, certain parts of your personality to make sure that people around you are not offended. I suppose a really good way to put it in the modern context is the idea of being an angry black woman. Hmm. 
So to have an opinion, to have, an, to have a voice as a black woman can be weaponized and used against you when maybe you just said, I'd like a little bit more jam with my toast, please. Um, and that can be construed in a negative way. So, you know, it can start in childhood, but I know that for those of us that have to navigate spaces where we are the minority, that as part of our survival or sometimes our idea that the way that I'm allowed to be in this room or in this space or in this place is to make sure that I do not upset anyone around me. Mm. How do you think psychologically, emotionally, that this informs your character or the way that you learn to navigate the world as a young person? Exhausting is the first word that comes to mind. Mm. Whenever I would go to a party or a social event, or meet a new group of people, the only thing that was in my mind as I entered rooms was, they must think I'm nice. They must not think that I, they have anything to fear from me and they must think that I am nice. So what that meant was any part of my personality that didn't fit into that very small box of niceness, and I talk a lot about niceness in my work now, meant that I just left it outside the door. Hmm. And when I look back, definitely my sort of mid-teens to early 20s, I didn't really show up in any of the rooms that I was actually in because I was in my head all the time trying to work out how I could be safe in the space that I found myself in. And it strikes me that having to live with a filter like that, in a sense, uh, takes away any opportunity for more deep character development or to become oneself in a way that feels authentic, right? It seems that you were being a character that you were supposed to play over and over again. 100%. And I think that anyone's listening that considers themselves with any kind of marginalized identity, it's exactly the same. You know, I have friends that um, are gay and they have had that experience where they have to put on a mask or put on a character to make sure that they are safe in the spaces that they find themselves in. So obviously my unique experience is through the lens of blackness, but it is something that many, many marginalized people have to experience um, when they feel that they're, or when they're told that they're not welcome in the majority. Mm. At what point in your life did you not just begin to recognize what was happening around you and the way that you were acting that, but then begin to think that, okay, there, there needs to be another way through this, not just for you, but you know, for other black women in the world or other minorities. Like what, what was a tipping point in your life to thinking this, this can't be my only future? That's a great question. And I don't think there was one particular moment I also believe in kind of life stages. Yeah. So I'm in midlife now, so that makes a huge difference. Um, but I think there were just certain points in my life, and I think one of them was a turning point for me, was that I'd started my career actually as a baker. Hmm. So I trained as a baker in the UK, and I moved from baking into acting. Well, actually, acting was always the goal, but I wanted to take a trade. My foster mum at that time was very astute and said, you know, acting can be a pretty difficult career. Yeah. So why don't you get a trade behind you? So I trained as a baker. And um, and if I may say so, was bread baker of the year um, <laughs> at the time that I was at Thank Bakery you. College. Uh -huh. I'll take that accolade. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and I moved into acting and I really enjoyed acting, but actually found myself with the Royal Shakespeare Company in New York, an incredible tour. You know, you get to be with the company for two years if you're doing a season with them. And I was speaking to a fellow actor and she was very excited. We were actually in Brooklyn. And she said, I'm really excited. You know, my dream is to play Lady Macbeth when I'm 40. Like if I can do that, then I feel that I've succeeded as an actor. And I remember being very excited for her. But I also remember thinking, oh, this is fun but I don't know if I want to play characters for the rest of my life. I think that part of my journey is to learn how to show up as Kemi, hmm. not to be other people for the rest of my life. So I think for me, that was a moment that was very poignant. Hmm. Well, you have found yourself now in a, in a position of coaching people, whether at the executive level or personally, and, and as a writer and influencer. And 
And I, I would love for you now to begin talking about the essence of power as you understand it in the world we live in now, particularly from a woman's perspective, or the way it's overlaid onto our culture and how women have to react to it. So like, take us to now and what you see around us mm. now and w- what's happening when we think about these really important conversations mm. of gender and power. Well, it's interesting because I mainly work with um, female clients. I do have a few good men sprinkled in there as Mm. well. But I mainly work with female clients. And what I was finding was that regardless of their title or their status or the industry they were in, their relationship to power was not one that matched maybe the title that they had. So they were finding themselves in boardrooms or on boards or in meetings or speaking and the opportunities that they had as a woman, which their mothers or their grandmothers did not have, was not matching their internal narrative around who they were. Mm. And then overlaid with my experience of power growing up, I suddenly realised the theme. And whenever I write, I'm always writing through the lens of what I am learning through my clients and what, what themes are revealing themselves to me. And so I looked at power and I thought, for most of us, power is about domination and it's about overpower. And for many of us, male or female, there's a form of power that has harmed us in some way. And so many of us don't want that form of power and power is for those people over there. So for me as a black woman, power is white, cisgendered, heterosexual, male, possibly Christian, able-bodied and neurotypical. Mm. And so power belongs to that group of people over there. So people like me don't get to have any. And yet when I started writing the book, the first thing I had to do with someone that loves words is to look at what is the actual dictionary definition of the word power. And the actual dictionary definition of the word power is the ability or capacity to do something in a particular way. So as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, so it's all been made up. Hmm. Because actually with that definition, everybody has access to power because we all have the ability to do something in a particular way. Now that doesn't negate the structures in place to make sure that a particular person has power. It doesn't negate the structures in place to make sure that other people don't feel that they have power. And yet when we look at that definition, we can all build power in a particular way. I wonder how and why that definition has changed so much because the way you first described it almost, you know, I think of it almost as as the ability to like make others act in certain ways that that Mm. conform to your view or something, Mm -hmm. right? That's what we think Mm. managing people essentially is, is you can tell them what to do, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And And yet the definition you pose is so much more expansive and to me feels more actually like freedom than anything else. And so I don't know, how, how do we square these two definitions that seem to be very at odds with each other? They, they, they can be at odds with each other. And yet, and I agree with you, you know, for me, the idea of power that I speak about and for myself live into and coach my clients around is this idea that power is abundant. Hmm. And we see it playing out everywhere, this form of power that, you know, Brene Brown talks about, this idea of power that's power over, that's scarce, that if you have it, I can't have it. And yet the power that I write about and the power that I am very committed to more people experiencing is a power that if I have power, I'm not afraid of your power. Hmm. If I have power, I will happily stand alongside you and I will support you and I will elevate your power in the same way that you will elevate my power because we're both standing in who we truly are in the world, doing something in a particular way to elevate humanity in a particular way. Hmm. So talk to me then or bring me, I should say, back into the boardroom with some of these women you work with. I mean, it sounds like that they were dealing with some of these different definitions of power as well. I mean, like what what were the stories you were hearing that that I think were, were no doubt troubling or confounding to many of them? So there was one particular client that I worked with, let's call her Zainab. And Zainab, we worked together for quite a few years because she came to me originally because she wanted to kind of get into the room she wanted to get into the c-suite and so we worked together that happened she got the promotion was very exciting she 
would sit at the table and found that she did not use her voice in that room. Or if she did, it was through the lens of being a good girl. It was through the lens of I'm the only female in this room and I must not rock the boat. I cannot be seen to have an opposite opinion to what everyone else is saying in the room. And so the work we started doing was her taking ownership of the fact that she's in that room for a reason. And it can be so interesting for those of us that... um, you know, may find ourselves to be the only in rooms, whether it's gender, whether it's race, is that it's very easy for us to believe, well, I'm only here because of my gender Mm. or I'm only here because of my race and therefore it doesn't matter. And I think it can be such an interesting lens to look through because for me as a, a professional speaker, I know that there are certain events that I am asked to speak at because I am a black woman. Mm -hmm. And my way of looking at it is if that is what is getting me into the door, I'm okay in some circumstances. I don't say yes to every single one of those invitations because I only have a certain amount of capacity and there are certain situations where I know that it's lip service, but there are other opportunities that are offered to me that I know that that is the reason I'm being invited and yet I know that I have work to do in that room. And so I'm very happy to do that. But for this particular client, Zainab, she was in that room and she kept turning in on herself I'm only here because I'm a woman. Maybe I shouldn't have got this job. I don't have a voice. And so the work that we then did was what was it? What would it look like for her if she took ownership that she was in that room because she, her, was meant to be in that room at this particular moment in time? And that completely changed her experience of herself and how she then contributed to that room. Mm. So when I hear that, and tell me if I'm, I'm off here, what I hear is that you're in the room because of the characteristics you bring. And even if you're a person of color, that is valued right now. And we want that perspective in the room as well. Is that what you mean by this moment in time, like in terms of the whole picture here? Or do I have that off? Am I off with that? No, no, you are, you are absolutely correct. And I will add to that, that that is not everyone's experience. I know that for some people with marginalized identities, it they don't see it in that way. Mm. And part of the power is taking ownership. You know, where I talk about the power principles in the book, part of it is taking ownership of our stories. And for some marginalized people, they don't want to be invited because of their particular characteristics. They want to be invited because of their their work and their experience. And what we want is an integration of all of that because we know how exciting and important and needed it is to have diversity at the table. And sometimes I don't think the invitation needs to be the reason that we say no. Sometimes we need to get into those rooms and see how we are treated in those rooms and how we are valued in those rooms that then will give us the idea of whether or not that is a room that we want to be in. Mm. Because that's something that's very different for me now is that I used to be a yes to every single room that I was invited in because part of my upbringing was be grateful for everything you're given. You know, you must be grateful that we decided to, to be your mum and dad for now. You must be grateful that um, for, don't rock the boat. You must be grateful. So I would say yes to situations that weren't psychologically safe for me to be in. Hmm. Whereas now, I won't do that. Mm-hmm. I, I won't do that. I respect my personhood enough. I respect my mental health enough to decline invitations where I feel that I wouldn't be psychologically safe or that it's just a box that's being ticked. Yes. Well, the uh, the other idea that came to me is, as I imagined you working with a client like the one you described, is is a phenomenon that I think we all have, which is this idea of imposter syndrome, right? That there's a part of me that hosting this program feels like an imposter. What? Why do I deserve mm. to be behind a microphone and have conversations with brilliant people like you? And and but I I wonder, you know, particularly working with people of color or women of color, like. How do you work through something like that? Is is it is it through kind of, you know, slow therapizing work? Is it through confidence? Is it like what like what are the tools you try to give someone to get over what are very understandable kind of psychological constraints? Well, something in there I believe is that I have a very dear colleague who talks about another level, another devil. Mm-hmm. And I know that what she means by that is that, you know, we can get into a particular job, you know, we could, we can have a particular role for working within an organization and we do the work around imposter syndrome and we understand that we bring value to that team and the work that we're doing and we're we're praised and we get the promotion and once again 
the same internal narrative. I don't deserve to be here. Yeah. What if I get it wrong? What? And then you work through that and then you find yourself promoted and you find yourself at the next level. <laughs> and so the reality is, although very much in the personal development space now, we can be given this idea that there are quick fixes, 21 days to rid yourself of imposter syndrome, you know, 21 days, you know, could be to power or whatever. Mm. I do not in any way subscribe to that. We are evolving human beings. We have an internal landscape that shifts and changes and moves. And we are all still small children wandering around in adult bodies. Mm. Mm. And so the want to fit into the playground the want to be liked by the teacher, you know, it all comes up in various ways as adults. And so, you know, the work that I do is very much being compassionate with, we are very fragile, most of us. And we do ask these questions, which is important to ask these questions. Who am I to get to do this? Yeah. You know, and you know, and the beautiful quote, you know, the beautiful quote after that is, well, who are you not to do this? Um, and so it's always an evolving conversation within myself and within my clients. But I do believe that we can get to a point where we integrate all of who we are. You know, this idea that I talk about within the book, the five power principles, you know, breaking power down, because I knew I had to redefine it away from this scarce resource into something that people wanted to move towards. So presence, ownership, wisdom, equality, you know, responsibility, that these are all things that we can take on. What is it to be present in my life? What is it to take full ownership of my story? Which doesn't mean I go and share it with everyone, you know, at the coffee shop, but that I take ownership of it for myself. Who I am, what's made me who I am, what's molded me, what are my wounds, what are my successes, what are my challenges, what are my gifts, wisdom, what is this internal knowing that I have within myself and when do I give it away to others at my detriment and when are the times that when I listen to myself and I trust myself that I can stand in my power. Mm. Equality, this idea that even if we have different external resources, which of course we do in this world, the discrepancies between the rich and the poor and the haves and the have-nots is huge and yet our equality in our humanity is exactly the same. And then finally, regardless of our external resources, that we do get to have responsibility in our lives. Now, some people will have more obstacles to be able to take in responsibility for their lives, but we all do have access to taking responsibility for the life, for who we want to be and the life that we want to live, although we're starting at very different starting points in some cases. Mm. I am really moved by a lot of the things you're saying, and and one thing that's really jumping out at to me is is the power of personal storytelling. This has come up a lot on the show, and I, and I don't know if you see this as much as I do, but it seems that we have a tendency to almost truncate our own stories or just tell the same small snippet over and over and over again, which doesn't even bring an ounce of value to the fullness of who we are. And what I heard you saying is that once in a while, it's almost like we need to stop and do a full accounting of how we got to where we are. I, and I don't know about you, I mean, just speaking personally, like when I do that and I think of where I've come in the years I put into something, suddenly I feel more worthy of where I've arrived to. Does that, does that make sense? Mm, yes, 100%. And I would say it's one of the delights for me as a coach and being able to mirror that back to my clients. And, you know, I never used to share, I never used to share that I was a foster child mm. because I would experience the pity and sometimes the shaming of that as a young child. And also what was interesting actually is that if I didn't fill in the story that actually my, my parents were Nigerian, they were middle-class Nigerians, their focus was on education because of the colonial narrative. It was that it had to be an English education and therefore they very much felt the best thing they were doing for their children was to give them an English education. Mm. Now, if I would just say to people, I am fostered, I would have people that would assume that my parents were addicts, that my parents, you know, hurt me in some way. And so I realized, ah, oh, you know, that is the case for some foster children, 100%, but that's not my story. Yeah. And so if I only give a snippet of, oh, well, I'm fostered and try and sort of forget the rest of it, then people are filling in the rest of the narrative. And I, out of respect for my parents, need to actually share the story. But what's so beautiful about the integration now for me is that one of the reasons that I coach the way that I do 
is that as a coach, I have to stand aside. I have to, I have to stand back. I care deeply for my clients, but I'm not in their lives. Now, when I would arrive at a foster family, I had to stand back and look at what was playing out in front of me and work out what is being said here, what is not being said here, where could I be of value here, what is it that I have to do or what is it that I don't do. Now, I do exactly the same as a client, as a coach. What is it my client is saying, but what is it they're not saying? What is it I'm hearing in their tone of voice that actually doesn't sound like what they're saying to me and sounds like the opposite? And so for me, the integration of my childhood and how I was raised plays out in my work all the time. For me, being an actor for seven years, the way that I speak as a keynote speaker, you know, I would watch um, I would watch the, the big speakers, you know, which were generally men mm. when I first got into speaking, generally white men. And I would watch them telling me how to live my life. You just need to do this. And if you do this and do this, then this is the life that you can have. And I remember thinking, but you don't know, you don't know me. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand how you can tell me how to live my life. And at the beginning, I thought I wanted to be like them. And then I realized, oh, no, they're giving me information about how I don't want to speak to audiences. I want to ask questions. I want to be curious. I want to stand on those stages knowing that I have no idea what is going on for my audience, but I'm going to get curious enough to ask them questions about their life so they can work out for themselves what is the next best thing for mm. them to do because that gives them power. It doesn't give me the power. It gives them the power. Mm. Well, I, I want to address one aspect of this because, I mean, it shows up in the title of your book and we hear about it, I think, around us as well, which is the, the role of apology for women or apologizing. How how do you feel like this plays into exactly what we're talking about and how to work with it or against it? I'd love for you to explore that with me. Well, I can I can definitely look at it. We can definitely sort of go in through the lens of words. And then, you know, I'm curious to see sort of where you might take us from there. But one thing I write about in the book is the power of words. So I work with women all the time that will say, I think... I think that what we need to do is, I, I think that he, I think that my team member, and I will often say, do you think or you know? Hmm. And they'll say, oh, I know. And I say, okay, so what is the difference between you thinking you know and you actually knowing? So, oh, well, I do need to have that meeting with him. Women can diminish ourselves in language. Language, often, hmm. it is unconscious. I, one of my things I know, you know, um, that I speak about in the book and I did it in a podcast interview that I did. Actually, I have to say that I think I haven't done it for a little while now, but it's where you say something and then at the end you say, does that make sense? Hmm. As if what we have said is not coherent, as if somehow we need to be translated because suddenly we started speaking gobbledygook and, you know, no one understood what we said. And so, for, and this is part of being good. It is not taking up it is not taking up space. If we say, I think we're not risking knowing, which means that we're not risking maybe being shot down or maybe getting wrong or maybe not being a good girl. So that's a big one. I worked with a leader in tech. She'd been working in the tech industry for 25 years. So very much at the forefront of a female leader within the tech industry. And she found herself in meetings saying, I think all the time. And mm -hmm. I'd say to her, do you know? And we actually would workshop and role play. And that's kind of where my acting comes in as well. I do role play with clients if they have per permission. They generally hate it, to be honest, as we begin. <laughs> uh -huh. But they do gather something through the process because I will, you know, mirror back to them kind of their fear around what might come back to them. And, you know, we workshopped, what could you say instead of I think? And she said, if I took full ownership, I would say, in my opinion, in my experience, what I know to be true, this is what I, I, uh, this is what I have learnt. And then she would say, and I would say, I think if I'm actually thinking, but not as a way of diminishing my actual experience and my knowledge in the area that I am. And what she noticed as a female leader was that she didn't want the women coming up behind her to diminish themselves or their power in their language either. And that was a real driver for her to change how she showed up at work. Interesting. And so for you then, uh, talk about how different it's received when, when you know, you speak with assertiveness or with confidence or with the, the different language that you're suggesting. Because, you know, I, I know that this 
conversation right now could tip into this question, well, if you're too assertive as a woman, then it comes across as aggressive, right? So these Mm. are these constant battles I know that women have to play in boardrooms or in the daily life that they lead. 100%. And then if you add, like I said, the overlay and intersectionality of race Mm. um, or even sexuality or identity, then that adds a whole other complexity to that. I, I do feel that and this is a feeling you know i do feel that kindness is still important in our communication you know for me as a dare to lead facilitator brene talks a lot about clear is kind unclear is unkind and part of my narrative is i'm english so manners are really important to me (laughs) um possibly a little bit too much my australian husband would say but they are important to me so we want to communicate clearly cleanly and directly because actually most of us appreciate that most of us don't appreciate someone communicating to us in a way that is apologetic and they're sort of saying something, but they're kind of not. And that is probably where it is worth saying at the end, do I make sense? Mm. You know, if I was saying to you, if I was in a performance review and I was saying, well, you sort of turned in the project on time, but it was sort of what we expected, but it kind of wasn't. And what we were hoping was for something a little bit more, you know, I could just keep going on and you could just be looking at me going, I have no idea what you're talking about. Whereas if I said to you, you're a valuable member of the team, and I know that that project could have been better, tell me what happened, what was happening for you that you handed in what you handed in. So it's clear, it's kind, and it gives equality to the other person. I'm not, I'm not pulling them down, but I'm also wanting to elevate their power because I know that they have more to bring. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 that's that's very well said. Um, well, I, I want to jump. I mean, the last part of your book deals with practices, and could you walk through a couple of them and the importance of practice, especially in the context of this conversation we're having? Yes, I love practice. I, you know, I love the concept of practice, the idea of process. You know, when we have lived in the world as who we are for a particular amount of time, this idea that we can change our behaviours overnight sets us up to fail and so I'm always talking about practice I talk a lot about play I talk a lot about experimentation and so because it takes off the heaviness you know it's like let's play let's Mm. play with you saying in my opinion instead of I think over the next couple of weeks and let's see what reveals itself to us Um, so the practices are very important because obviously as a coach it's all about me sharing processes with clients or taking them through processes or giving them space to work out processes for themselves so one of them actually I'll share it's at the top of mind because Um, somebody shared with me yesterday one of the processes that made a huge difference for her was what I call the power list. So what I share in the book and what I invite the reader to do is to write down the 10 biggest decisions that they have ever made in their lives. And as, as you've already said, you know, when you look back, when you give yourself time to reflect, it actually gives you a very different lens of how to look at where you've been, where you've got to, the work that you've done, what you've achieved, who you are. And the power list is something very similar you're looking at what are the biggest decisions that I've made? Because ultimately, they, we are looking at the times that we stood in our power and took ownership of who we were, who we wanted to be and who we wanted to become. And so for me, you know, one of them was leaving a successful career of acting against the wants and advice of everyone around me. I took responsibility for what I wanted in my life and I wanted something different. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew I didn't want that. And so I list my um, top 10 decisions and this this um, reader shared with me yesterday that it completely changed in a moment her relationship with herself when she could look at the biggest decisions that she's made in her life. And she realized, wow, I actually have had really powerful moments in my life. So that that is one of the processes. And another one of the, um, the I call them power practices within the book. Is something actually that I do as a dare to lead facilitator, which is when I'm working with women around the dare to lead work, it's this process called I am. And um, I know that um, Joel Olstein, who is an incredible orator um, in the in the US, mm-hmm. he wrote this book called I am because he talks about, you know, I am are the two most powerful words in our vocabulary because anything that comes after that becomes our truth. So if we say I am stupid, Um, I am not enough, I am not worthy, as opposed to I am learning, I am practicing, I am becoming a better version of me, changes how we experience ourselves. And so I am is a way of taking the power 
um, principles that I talk about around presence, ownership, wisdom, equality and responsibility and putting them into a kind of personal manifesto. So, you know, an example of what I share in the book is, you know, I am Nigerian. I'm of English heritage. I'm of fostered stock. You know, I'm a lover of beauty. I'm a grower of flowers. And I and it's an opportunity for us to own all of whom that we are as a way of standing in our power. Well, it's been so wonderful to be joined by Kemi Nekvapil, author of Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leaving Without Apology. Um, Kemi, thank you so much for this conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight to speak with you. Still to come, the price of power and why it's turning women off. Also, before I forget, maybe you noticed something new in your podcast feed this week or heard me on Morning Edition. We've introduced a new short segment called The Midweek Reset. Each week, I'll reflect on one idea from a previous guest. Think of it as an invitation for reflection. Once again, you can find that Wednesday mornings in the Life Examined podcast feed. We'll be back with part two of our conversation after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. So what is it about the essence of power that makes it so distasteful? Do women who have power have to sacrifice their empathy and compassion? Why would redefining power, who has access to it and is rewarded for it, be a benefit for everyone? Joining me now to further explore this and the history of power is Caddy Kay, journalist and co-author of The Power Code, More Joy, Less Ego, Maximum Impact for Women and Everyone. Caddy Kay, welcome to Life Examined. Jonathan, it's a pleasure. I'm excited. Uh, power, such such a big and thorny subject. You clearly decided to take on one of the, the big themes in, in human history. Um, what fascinated you in particular about power and having to look at it from multiple angles? What, where, where did this take you? Yeah, my co-author and I, Claire Shipman, came across the idea of power. I think we had, I remember the lunch where the conversation first happened, and I think we had no idea at the time quite how much we'd bitten off. Um, It really is kind of one of those big subjects. I guess the, the genesis for this book honestly came out of a sense of frustration of having for both of us having worked for years in the media business um, and now written books together about women and leadership and then looking at the numbers and thinking, hold on, you know, why are we still only 10% of CEOs? And why is it that of the world's 190-odd countries, only 27 have female leaders? And yet we, we know all of the data around educational attainments by women and the kinds of skills that we bring to the table. I've cited the data many times on all of the studies that show that companies that employ more women literally make more money, do better. I mean, they come from the IMF, they come from Goldman Sachs, they come from Columbia, Pepperdine. I mean, that there are these studies from all over the world and, and yet we're not there yet. And I think it was that really that drove us to think, why? I mean, what, what is it about power itself? And we know the hurdles and we know the barriers, but was there something about power itself, this thing that kind of seems to sit above our heads that we can't quite, you know, crash through mm. that that was worth exploring? Yeah. Talk to me, I think, about the idea of power for women over the last hundred or so years. And, and if I have this right, because I remember reading it in the book, it was this idea that um, for a woman to be powerful, she needed to attain a sense of almost masculine power or the way that men understood power. Well, can you kind of explain that to me? You know, there have been so many um, strands of power that have been handed down to us over the centuries and and most of them, most of the studies of power and what power is and what it means and who has it and how it should be wielded have been drawn up by men over the centuries. Understandably, they were the ones that had power. And the closest that women got to power was the idea of having sort of power behind the throne, you know, that uh, you could influence your husband, um, which was never terribly satisfactory because that was borrowed power and it could be taken away. So we've had centuries of being told what power looks like. And now I think what's starting to happen is that as women, female academics, as women academics explore what power is 
lo and behold, the definition and our understanding of power is broadening. And so I, I thought that was, you know, one of the, the really interesting things we found as we as we drove, dove into power, seeking for a definition. You know, what is power? What is this thing? And and the difference in how male academics have kind of understood power and understood their relationship with power, and now the broadening definitions of power and how female academics are adding to our understanding and changing our understanding of, of what power is. So, what do you think the, the kind of, you know? The, the old platonic form of power was, and I, I assume it was held by men, but how would you think of a, a very early definition that carried out throughout history? I think it was pretty clear that it was the, I mean, the simplest understanding of power, I suppose, is this idea of, of having power over people or resources, of making people do things that you, that they didn't necessarily want to do. I mean, you know, you go back to Machiavelli and the prince and uh, his guide to how to amass and keep political power. Um, and it was very um, one that it demanded strategy. It was very hierarchical. It was about having absolute control. And I think that that is a wonderfully simple view of power in a way that we can all understand, right? I mean, it's, it's this zero-sum game idea of power that more power for you, Jonathan, necessarily means less for me, mm. right? We're in competition for this finite resource. And I think, you know, Machiavelli kind of completely embodied that idea of power and, and his, view, his view of power really was is modified around the edges, but not changed terribly much um, over the centuries that followed him until really quite recently when there was a thinking that maybe there, there may be some other way of defining and understanding and wheel, and most important of wielding and valuing power. Mm. And what were the personal costs of power? I mean, there's always been this notion that power ultimately has a corrupting influence on one's life or comes with a, a profound amount of sacrifices. How, how would you explain those? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the the quote kind of often misattributed to Vaclav Havel, the uh, Czech uh, president, is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And actually that dates back to 1887 and a British writer and, and politician, Lord John Act mm. Acton, and he came up with the phrase, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what I think many people don't know is the last little bit of his axiom, which is great men are nearly always bad men, which that in itself we can get to later because that, that you know, sparked our attention and made us think, well, is that the same for women? Does power corrupt women in the same way that it does men? And we, we get into research on that. But I guess the, the cost of power was that you lost your empathy and compassion for those below you. So as you rose up the ranks and as you got more power and you got power over people and over resources, the ego gratification that comes with power and possibly the ego drive that it took to get you to that position of power stripped you of your empathy and compassion. And if you think of corruption, corruption is the ultimate version of having power over people. You can, you can get people to do things that you want um, because, solely because you are in a position of power and things that are not in their best interests. Uh, and I think uh, that that idea of corruption is, is not exactly, I think, what has turned many women off power directly, but I'm sure it's one of the things that has made power seem less appealing. And it is this kind of egocentric view of power, I, I think, that women find, have found perhaps isn't something that is worth the worth that cost, worth that price that you're talking about. Yeah, say a bit more about that. I think it's something you highlight in the book, which is that a number of women do pause at the idea of saying, I'm just going to chase, you know, this one very strict definition of power that has come with all these costs. That, that has been a, a real point of reflection for a lot of women, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, I think I, I mentioned that one of the things that drove this book was frustration, right? We haven't got as far as we feel we should have got. Um, and the other thing that drove this book was some research that we found that came out of Harvard by an associate professor there called Alison Wood Brooks, who spent many years looking at women and women and power in particular. And she's always looked at it from the side of power that, of the barriers and the hurdles, all of which are real. And to explain why women haven't got to the top, it's all of these inequities and the fact that the playing field isn't leveled. And, and some of the things that we write about the book, in the book, and those things are definitely there. But then one day she had a she went to a lecture and she kind of had a revelation, which was, what about if there's something else going? What if it's not about the 
supply side of power, if you like. It's about the demand side. What about if it's women's demand for power that is different? And she did a series of nine different um, studies with thousands of people in which she basically tried to assess women's desire for power. Mm. And her conclusion after these studies was that women don't want power. The costs of getting it are too high and the stuff itself just doesn't seem very appealing to us. And the the way she did the studies was basically she asked women about their life values compared to their power values and she asked men the same question and what she found is that time and again no matter their age no matter their seniority women had very many more life values um, things in life that are important to them their community their children their parents um, their church whatever it is exercise a whole load of other things friendships and men had many more power goals compared to women Mm. and her her conclusion from that was that all of those things that we find valuable, we would have to forsake too many of them to pursue the power goals. And so we turn away from power. Interesting. I, how do you un- understand this if we go to one layer below that? I mean, my, my mind goes, is this, is this a nature-nurture conversation? How do you sit with that kind of a study and think about it psychologically? I would go more with nurture over nature. I mean, there, there and, and this is not... Um, the studies on this are a little inconclusive. Uh, there have been studies that show that women are more empathetic than men, yeah. but what the studies don't show is whether that is a function of centuries of social conditioning, which in and of itself makes the cost for us not being empathetic very high because we are expected to be empathetic, or whether we have a genetic predisposition to be empathetic. Um, I haven't seen, and we have done some looking for this, I haven't seen the genetic research suggesting that there are, that we have genes that would control certain hormones in our body that would make us more prone to empathy. I mean, you could talk about testosterone and estrogen a little bit maybe, and we know that testosterone does many things, including kind of fueling risk, and estrogen does many things, including fueling some kind of nurturing instinct. Um, but I, I would I would lean towards saying that this is centuries of social conditioning that have made women um, more feel that they need to be the caregivers in society. And we talk a lot in the book about the role that men have in this world. And actually, you know, the, the irony that many men are not doing some of the caregiving at home, because they will often say, well, she's just so much better at it than I am, or the children want her. But actually, these are men who are sort of, you know, project managers at work and are perfectly capable of doing that. And were, did were society to reward them for doing those things, I suspect we would find that men were just as good at it as women are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also use the word code in the title of your book, like the power code. What? How does that factor into this conversation we're having about the nature of power and also who is trying to access this code and who is not? When we first, we first started researching this book, really before Black Lives Matter and kind of around Me Too, and I think it was, we'd sort of thought of calling it the power shift, that there was a power shift going on in workplaces, that power is moving from men to women, from people who have had it to people who have been excluded from having it. That shift is taking place. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement accelerated that and then spawned a whole, you know, pointed a whole spotlight on another group of people who had also not had access to power in the same way. So I think both of those, I mean, they both looked really, I guess, at white men. I mean, through an, an accelerated this understanding of a sense of inequity. Um, and that power had been held by people who had not wielded it. In both of those movements, the people who had had power in the Me Too movement and the people who had had power in the Black Lives Matter had not wielded it in a way that was in society's best interests. Certainly not in the best interests of the people who had been excluded from power, but we would argue not in society's best interests generally. And I think that that is what made us think this is the right moment for this book because people are asking these questions. I mean, you know, Jonathan, I look around you, look between climate change, power, corrupt power movements in this country, corrupt power movements in Europe, you know, in Brazil, you name it, populist movements around the world. I don't know. It doesn't look to me like it's going so well. Mm. So why not think big? Why not take this moment when, and then add in what COVID did to our, literally to our workplaces and to power structures that had been existing in workplaces that seemed immutable. The idea that you wouldn't have to go to the office five days a week, 10, 11 hours a day, 
that was unthinkable. I spent years of my career asking my bosses, please, can I have one afternoon working from home or one day working from home? And, and was kind of almost inevitably met with a sort of, well, how do I know you're not just going to sit on the sofa and watch movies and eat Cheerios? I mean, you know, that, and that's, that has, that changed almost overnight with COVID and, it, and the change has proved long lasting. So what else could change? You know, and we, we didn't, we, we assumed that was going to be the way it was. We were all going to go to offices. So what else that we assumed had to be part of our work lives actually doesn't. But how would it change though, just the, the essence and the nitty gritty and often the unpleasantries mm. around managing, because that's oftentimes mm. what someone does when they operate a company. They still have to decide who does what, uh, at what level, who gets to rise up, who gets to fall down, who gets paid, who doesn't. I mean, that stuff to me is <laughs> the really unpleasant aspect of managing is why I don't want to do it. But do you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I appreciate yeah. the reframe, but like the realistic difference I'm trying to understand. We spoke to Sint Marshall, who is the first black female CEO of a NBA team. She's the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah. And she was tapped by Mark Cuban to do that job and Sint has this idea of leadership uh, which initially when we heard it kind of just sounded like a kind of cute management tool that we we thought was nice but actually is much more profound than that and it's this idea of bringing your whole self to work she says you know people don't leave their home in the morning and pop into a phone booth and put on a superman cape and then come to the office and if you are running an organization you need to know who that person is um, and so she encourages this idea of whole self. She will ask, you know, when she has, you know, performance review meetings, she'll say, you know, where do you want to be in five years? And she said initially when she got to the Mavericks, everybody would say, well, I want to be management level or I'm hoping to direct a department or I want to be, you know, VP of sales. And she says, no, where do you and your family want to be? She encourages them to do actually in a way something that perhaps we've been encouraged not to do over the years, which is kind of talk about our home lives and our problems and our, um, our issues at work. Um, and she says that that makes for stronger organizations. It actually, she says then, she had joined before Black Lives Matter. She said when Black Lives Matter hit, she felt that the Mavericks was in so much better position to deal with the kind of social tumult and the crisis that that incident caused in, in many corporations in America because people felt heard already and trusted already and respected already. There's enormous return on respect. Well, I've been speaking with Caddy Kay, journalist and co-author of The Power Code, More Joy, Less Ego, Maximum Impact for Women. And everyone, really enjoy the conversation. Caddy, thanks for the time. Thank you, Jonathan. That's it for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. Make sure to connect with us on Facebook. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. You can also find me on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. Once again, every Wednesday morning now, you'll find the Midweek Reset, a short pause for a new perspective. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon. I'm Jonathan Bastion, and this is Life Examined.